Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Sister Sarah, one of the tracks from Circus of Life, the first album of all new material to be released in decades by the unpredictable but always provocative Texas legend Kinky Friedman. Kinky will join us later in the show to talk about his wild career with his band, the Texas Jew Boys, up to what he thinks of Nashville today. But first, we'll reveal our number one from our list of the 100 other greatest songwriters of all time, and then we'll play a little band name combination game. Part one. Well, this is our 101st episode of Songcraft. Yep. We had our 100th uh uh, celebration last time. You remember that, Paul? You were there. Yep. This episode is sponsored by 101st Airborne, the <laughs> restaurant in Nashville made out of old World War II planes, right? Does that still exist? I don't know. <laughs> Somebody tell me. I know we got some Nashville listeners. Um, so one of the things that we did uh, on the last episode, spoiler alert, if you've not heard it yet, uh, you might want to stop listening now because we don't want to ruin it. But uh, <laughs> You might want to stop listening now anyway. <laughs> <laughs> this is good advice. You've, you've heard a hundred. I'm sure it's fine. Um, so Rolling Stone magazine, uh, a couple years back did their list of the 100 greatest songwriters of all time. And we created our alternate list called the other 100 greatest songwriters of all time, which you can see at our website, songcraftshow.com. And if you look over in the, uh, in the top corner, there's a link there for you to click and you can actually check out our list of the hundred greatest, but we didn't list all 100. We listed 99 and we revealed our number one to our Patreon subscribers on the day that we launched the episode. It's now been two weeks. Um, we had some new subscribers on Patreon, so yep. they must, the, the suspense was killing them. They welcome. had to find out. Yeah. So welcome to our new, uh, our new Patreon subscribers. Um, but we are now going to reveal what we consider the number one other greatest songwriter of all time of the rock and roll era I mean. of the rock and roll era right we use the words all time only because rolling stone did but they yeah. foolishly only did us a, a very specific amount leaving of time. out rogers and hammerstein and george right. gershwin right yeah. yeah um so anyway here's the big reveal <laughs> our number one is a tie little richard and bumps blackwell and the reason we picked both of them is because all the big little Richard hits basically were written by either one of them or the other, or both of them in combination. Um, and you think about little Richard really set yeah. the template for rock and roll. Well, I, I think you could pick any rock icon and say there would be no blank if it weren't for little Richard. You know, I mean, yeah. anyone you go back to there would be no Elvis Presley if there weren't little Richard. Yep. There'd be no Jerry Lee Lewis if there weren't little Richard. There'd yeah. be no Otis Redding if there weren't Little Richard. And so you, you think about the movements that sparked from, from those type of artists. Um, I think you have to look at him as sort of, you know, especially as, as a writer, the fact that he was writing his own stuff, um, yep. just kind of the godfather of it all. Yeah. And you could uh, 
very easily make an argument that there would be no Motown if it weren't for uh, Little Richard. Sure. And, and of course, our guest on the last episode was the great Lamont Dozier, uh, Motown hitman. And uh, we told everybody last time that we're going to be giving away a, an autographed CD, um, Lamont's most recent album, Reimagination, which is a killer album, by the way. Um, yeah. So we told everybody last time we we're going to be giving one of those away, but that was false. We are not uh, giving one of those away, actually, at all. It was a complete uh, <laughs> fabrication. No. We do this. Uh, <laughs> no, we do have a signed CD by Lamont. We said we were going to give it uh, two episodes for people to enter, so that's a total of four weeks. That means we're the halfway mark. You've got two more weeks to enter, but here's the thing. Only Patreon subscribers can enter this contest. So if yep. you are one of our Patreon subscribers, um, please feel free to enter that, and we will draw a name in time for the next episode in two weeks. Um, if you're wondering what the heck that is, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow and find out how you can help support what we're doing here on the show. And even new Patreon subscribers are eligible to uh, to enter to win this signed CD. Um all you got to do to actually enter the contest is send us an email and put Lamont Dozier in the subject line. You can find out how to email us on our website at songcraftshow.com. Just click the contact link there um, and mention Lamont Dozier and that you're a Patreon subscriber and that you're entering and uh, you might be the lucky winner. Part two. So, uh, Scott, there's a game that uh, that we've been playing. Yes. Um, I started Twister? playing. A- yeah. <laughs> Yes, Twister. Every morning before we start an episode, we play a, a, a raucous game of Twister here in Songcraft headquarters. No, that's not the game. Um, with some other friends of mine, just kind of came up in a conversation, this idea of combining two band or artist names to create uh, kind of m- maybe the worst artist ever. Um, and But the idea is that these names have to kind of match. You kind of got to match the words up in, in a way. And uh, I, when I told you about it, you you latched right onto it, and and were a complete natural at it, and and uh, so I thought I was... used all my data texting you back and forth, uh, <laughs> totally. funny band names. Um, but you know, so, some of the examples we came up uh, with early, you know, were like uh, Blind Melon Camp. <laughs> see see where we're going with this, people. Um, and, and it started with we were talking about combining a Christian artist and and a like secular artists yeah. and putting them together. So we had like jars of clay Aiken yeah. and Huey Lewis and the Newsboys, yeah. and, and and we decided that we were entertaining ourselves so much that okay, let's take this beyond that genre. Let's just combine like a couple of uh, a couple of pop artists or rock artists right. or whatever. The idea being that. Not necessarily saying that we dislike every artist that's included. Not at all. But combining some of these when they're together, it's a problem. Really, yeah, it's like uh, it's like it, it it's like peanut butter and uh, and I don't know what popcorn. It just like you, you like them both, but it's... I, I like Bruce Springsteen and I like Sting, but I, I don't care for Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> right. That's and I like Janet Jackson and I like Jackson Brown, but I don't care for Janet Jackson Brown. Yeah, that's not that's not an artist I want to listen to either. <laughs> uh, Joss Stained is in a class all herself as well. But um, we uh, so we each have ten here that we haven't heard from one another. They haven't been part of our previous conversation. We're going to just kind of get into them now. You want to alternate? Yeah. Here's what I think we should do. I, I, I want to turn this into a contest. Okay. I want to see who laughs first. Okay. So I think we got to try not to laugh. So, but the rules are like, we got to say them to each other and then you got to, you got to literally picture in your head. Okay. You got to really think about like what that would be and, uh, and and see who can make the other one laugh first. So who, who wants to go first? I'm going to go first. All right. Fleetwood Macklemore. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, that didn't work. Okay. Uh, Let me see if I can see if you can keep going? a yeah. see if you can keep a straight face on this one. Barry White Snake. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even have to try that time. Wow, Barry White Snake. Yeah, I don't want to listen to that. Um Jason Aldean Martin. <laughs> Simply red hot chili peppers. Oh god. Yeah, that's rough. Um this is there, there's there's two different options here. Either you two be forty or you Beyonce. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Who am so, I? You Beyonce. <laughs> How about a little uh, Kenny G love and special sauce? <laughs> wow. I might actually <laughs> listen to that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Skinnerd Cohen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last night you went to the, the Phil Collins show. Yes. Here in, uh, here in Inglewood, California. Awesome. With your wife. You did. Yeah. That's not a joke. Yeah. Um, so happy for you guys to hang out. I'm glad we can all be friends. <laughs> yeah. um, so you guys went and you saw Phil Collins. Yeah. Uh, and which got me thinking, Phil Collins is great, but yeah. would anyone want to hear uh, Phil Collins saying clown posse? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I can't think of the act that you would combine insane clown posse with that I would want to listen to at all. No. It doesn't. Um, it doesn't get better. Wow. Sorry to any juggalos. Maybe out like there. insane clown Percy Faith. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, would you listen to REM and M? Probably not. Yeah. Uh, how about uh, Fountains of Wayne Newton? Ooh, gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually just thought of this one while we were doing a previous segment. Right. Um, I had to throw it in. Little Richard Marks. <laughs> I came up with that one too. Oh crap! Is that one of yours? <laughs> no, nah, that was one of my bonuses. <laughs> yeah, I got some of those too. Um, all right, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit you with uh, I'm gonna hit you with three in a row right here. All right, Olivia Newton, John Bon Jovi, <laughs> Tracy Chapman, Heinz Steamroller. Oh, and uh, my personal favorite, Toby Keith Sweat. Ooh, that may be the worst one yet. <laughs> slash best. Is that all? Wait, is that ten now? No, no, I still got a couple more in the tank. I just wanted okay. to, I wanted to hit you hit you with a few there. All right, well let me, let me hit you with three then. Stone Temple 21 Pilots. Yeah. Peter, Paul, and Mary J. Blige. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and this is one that, that maybe only you will resonate with, but I think some of our listeners will too. Pink Floyd Kramer. <laughs> Dude, I had that on my <laughs> list too. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, um, all right, so... Here's one for you. Adele DeBarge. Oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sugar Ray Charles. <laughs> Tom T. Hall and Oates. <laughs> That's inspired. <laughs> Smash Mouth Pumpkins. <laughs> All right, so so here, here's I'm one. I'm in the honorable mention category now. Here's one that I, that I, I got to give credit because my wife helped me with this one. Uh, this is a triple. Wow. Shaka Kanye Twitty. Dude, I might need to quit. <laughs> That's pretty good, man. Shaka Kanye Twitty. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Kanye <laughs> Twitty on its own is incredible. So, so 
here's a few other ones I came okay. up with just for fun. I know we were supposed to do 10, but... Yeah, no, I got too, too many as well. We got uh, Clint Black Sabbath. Amazing. Uh, Boy George Jones. <laughs> <laughs> Black-eyed Peebo Bryson. Jeez. Uh, this is another one that Mel, Mel came up with. LL Cool J.J. Kale. Ooh, I might listen to that too. Um, Baja Minute Work. Nice. Uh, I actually had Little Richard Marks also. Yeah, but that, then, that could be a mix of who let the dogs out and who can it be now. Yeah, that could actually oh, work. Could yeah. be an interesting mashup. Um, <clears throat> then I then I was thinking about the uh, Third Eye Blind Boys of Alabama. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and uh, you know, this one is this one's a little deep, but you know, there's a group called the Fairfield Four gospel yeah you know gospel group i thought the fairfield four non-blondes would be no, a particularly good. unusual mashup yeah and also awful yeah so um i've even got more but i'm gonna i'm just gonna put it i could go all night with this yeah i mean i, I have a few here uh justin timberson lake and palmer um <laughs> motley cure <laughs> <laughs> gross all you gotta do is take a few letters and move them for that one uh john bon Iver, which i know it's bon Iver, but it looks better john bon um camper van halen Nice. Yeah, that's a that's a deep pull from the indie spot. Uh, Jill Scott Stapp. I actually had John Cougar Mellon Camp and Camper Van Beethoven. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my final one is Carol Kings of Leon. <laughs> um, so it, we would love to hear um, you guys and your ideas on this. Um, if there are any particularly funny ones, I, I wouldn't mind reading them in the next episode. Yeah. Because I think this could be an ongoing discussion. So. I think that you and I uh, could entertain one another for days texting these back and forth to each other. Totally. Because I'll be like at work and then I'll get a text from Paul that's just randomly with no explanation, one of these combined <laughs> names, and it makes my day. So. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, entertain us. Part three. Do you know the only way that I think a band like uh, Joss Stained could sound good? <laughs> How's that? Is if they took their music, uh, watch what I'm about to do here. If they took their music to Pearl Snap Studios for a demo. Ah, yeah. Was that nice. smooth or what? That was a smooth transition, sir. Um, if you guys have, have heard our podcast before, you know that our, our friends at Pearl Snap Studios are big time friends of the show. And uh, so we want to take a moment to give a shout out to them. Uh, I know a lot of you guys are songwriters, um, you know, and you want to get your stuff heard and get it pitched. Um, if you want to get this stuff recorded in a way that people are actually going to listen to the songs and give the songs a real chance, um, and this Without is not, spending a gazillion dollars. Well, yeah, and and this is this is not just me making some like you know, weird pitch, but you, you can't just send them an iPhone recording. It's just not going to work. Um, and to have people like uh, Justin and the folks over at Pearl Snap who are doing um, serious like high level recording work uh, that are going to give your demos an actual shot, um, it's priceless for a songwriter. In fact, we have um, a little sampling of their works. So you can hear a bit of what they've done. So yeah, I mean, you can hear this is like professional. This is professional stuff, and uh, and they're not going to charge you an arm and a leg. I think it's actually only an arm. <laughs> I haven't checked the the recent prices, but I think it's just an arm. <laughs> um, but always happy to give a shout out to our friends at Pearl Snap. Um, like I said, they're big friends of the show, and so check them out at PearlSnapStudios.com. Part four. Always provocative and often insightful, singer, songwriter, novelist, humorist, and politician Kinky Friedman, along with his band the Texas Jew Boys, brought the spirit of Lenny Bruce to country music. 
Called the Frank Zappa of country, Friedman raised eyebrows with politically incorrect fare such as get your biscuits in the oven and your buns in the bed, homo erectus, they ain't making Jews like Jesus anymore, and asshole from El Paso. Self-styled as a profane Will Rogers, Kinky's persona as a cigar-chomping raconteur often overshadowed his considerable skills as a songwriting craftsman. From the sharp social commentary of We Reserve the Right to Refuse Service to You, to strictly serious fare such as Rapid City, South Dakota, Dear Abby, and Lady Yesterday, his knack for keen observation and tightly constructed songs attracted the attention of admirers such as Billy Joe Shaver, Willie Nelson, Eric Clapton, and even Bob Dylan, who invited Kinky and the Texas Jew Boys to join his legendary Rolling Thunder Review Tour. Dylan once said, I don't understand music. I understand Lightning Hopkins. I understand Lead Belly, John Lee Hooker, Woody Guthrie, and Kinky Friedman. Friedman eventually set songwriting aside and built a reputation as a celebrated mystery novelist. He went on to become a columnist for publications such as Rolling Stone and Texas Monthly, and has published a long list of fiction and nonfiction books. He even ran for governor of Texas in 2006 under the campaign slogan, Why the Hell Not?, eventually coming in fourth with nearly a half million votes. In 2018, Kinky the Songwriter returned with his first album of new original material in nearly four decades. Circus of Life spotlights the chops of a master songwriter who never lost his touch. Kinky, welcome to Songcraft. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> it's our pleasure to have you. Um, you know, you've been called a provocateur, irreverent, outrageous, an agitator, politically incorrect, an iconoclast, but maybe what gets lost in the persona is the fact that you're a really skilled songwriter. And whether it be your well-known satirical stuff or some of the well-crafted character studies you've written, your songs are lyrically tight and they're very often melodically memorable after one listen. I'd be really interested to hear who your greatest songwriting influences were. I guess mine were uh, were Johnny Cash, uh, Jimmy Rogers, straight hard, head on country music like sure. like uh, Charlie Walker, like Pick Me Up on Your Way Down, right, right, stuff like that. Yeah. So that, and then a little later, uh, Willie and Waylon. Sure. Uh, but early, and Johnny Cash is an interesting career because. The songs that I loved of Johnny Cash's, I'd say most of his fans today never heard. <laughs> what like what stuff? Like uh, "Don't Step on Mama's Roses," <laughs> stuff like that. Or early, or right around five foot high and rising that sure. era. Yeah. Uh, Come in, stranger. You know that song. Yep. So uh, anyway, he was able to. Well, I mean, after every record label in Nashville passed on him uh, towards the end of his career because <laughs> right. he was too old right <laughs> uh, that was astonishing that was yeah. incredible right that, uh, that it would take a punk rock rock approach out of san francisco to make it happen yeah talking of course about his uh career resurgence with um with rick rubin outside of the the nashville system which um you know i i guess you can kind of identify with that um you know, having built your career largely outside that system yourself. And, um, you know, go, going back to, to kind of the beginning of your career, you, you started out um, in Texas where you studied psychology at UT Austin and, and put a band together called King Arthur and the Carrots, which was kind of uh, uh, a band that satirized surf music and, and, you know, recorded some material like your original song, Schwinn 24. Me and the fellas gonna take a heart. 
after those um, early days in Austin, you wound up in California before giving it a go in Nashville. Tell us about going to Music City and those early experiences there. Well, that's the very best of times, was uh, being a songwriter in Nashville when it was happening. Uh, Chuck Glazer came out to L.A. and convinced me to come to Nashville. And, and the Glazers had... The Glazers were a very poignant story. I mean, it's almost Shakespearean how they didn't get along with each other. Right. But Tom Paul was a great one, who I I really think began the whole the whole outlaw business. Right. And uh, because he was the one that had something to lose. He was really a, a music row magnate. I mean, yeah. he was a success story. And Willie and Waylon were like gypsies, you know. I mean, they didn't like the way it was going. They didn't like being told what to do and how to record and who to record with and all that shit. I understand that. Yeah. Uh, but I think they made the most out of it. Or, and uh, Tom Paul kind of uh, slipped between the fingers of America. Right. And that's unfortunate because I, I think Tom was the one who first opened things up for these guys and everybody else, for guys with crazy ideas in the middle of the night to be in a studio. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they were wide open to different uh, different hats, different outfits, different uh, uh, things like that. And in fact, even the even the John Hartford song uh, "Gentle on My Mind," which was during my time, right? Um, even that one, which Chuck Glazer discovered and produced, and which Tom Paul and all of them were were for, is a kind of song that probably wouldn't have been recorded. Yeah, if you'd left it up to the, the you know Chet Atkins and the execs on Music Row, right, right, the guys who got Willie to wear a, a cashmere sweater or something <laughs> thought that might help. Right, right. Um, well, in 1973, after you signed with Tom Paul and the Glazer Brothers Publishing Company, uh, Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys released the now classic Sold American album on Vanguard Records, and the Sold American single became the only Kinky Friedman record to hit the Billboard Country Chart. And everything's been sold American. The early times is finished, and the wanted's all red. Everyone's been sold American. Been dreaming dreams in a roll away. Now, I've been told that after that song was released, you became the first Jewish artist to play the Grand Ole Opry. And I can't think of an institution that values tradition as much as the Opry. So talk about your experience performing there as an artist who, you know, definitely like to shake things up. Yeah, I played the Grand Ole Opry a couple times, introduced by Tom Paul. Right. And, and uh, that day, the first time I ever played the Opry, I went to uh, the laundromat on the corner where I lived in a house with uh, Billy Swan on the floor above us. And by us, I mean me and the mouse in my pocket. <laughs> At any rate, I did my laundry there, right. and I was carrying it home in a laundry bag that afternoon. That night, I was going to be on the Opry. Now, Hazel Smith saw that. She knew me. and Hazel Smith's the person who named the outlaws, the outlaws. Hmm. And uh, she, was a, she was a really good one. She was married to Bill Monroe for a while. Huh. And uh, anyway, she had a lot to do with the Glazer Brothers' success, I believe. Anyway, 
and she really helped the Jew boys. Right. So Hazel said she couldn't believe it when she saw me carrying the this. She said it's the first time she ever saw anybody who was going to play the Grand Ole Opry that night carrying their own laundry, you know, <laughs> and walking in, walking down the sidewalk, right, carrying their own laundry. They'd done their laundry, and she thought that was a great sign of character. And anyway, <laughs> she was very impressed with it. Right. And on the same walk. This, I'm in the alley behind Music Row, and that's when Waylon Jennings pulls up in a cloud of dust in his Lincoln uh, Continental, whatever the hell it was, four-wheeled penis. <laughs> and um, and I uh, and Waylon says, "Hop in, kink. Walking's bad for your image." <laughs> right. Just two takes on the same uh, story. <laughs> and um, anyway, so we did the Opry thing, and uh, Dobie Gray played with us. So he did drift away. We did carrying the torch uh, and sold American carrying the torch song that was never recorded but almost right by Whalen uh, about the Statue of Liberty about a girl back home who's carrying the torch for you so they brought us back for the grand old gospel hour and that was run by Jimmy Snow who was uh, Hank Snow's son right and Jimmy Snow had all these big big bosomed women <laughs> in a group called the Temple Evangel Choir right and I mean it that must have been a... They all had a very large bosoms. <laughs> and I mean, they... Yeah, so anyway. So it was gospel. That's when I was introduced as the first full-blooded Jew to ever appear on the Grand Ole Opry stage. One of the most interesting things was... Are you guys still there? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Yep. No, if you went into a diabetic coma or not. <laughs> uh, but, but one of the things that interested me, and it's very... What I consider a failure, how ridiculous this effort was with the Texas Jew Boys, how hopeless it was, and to think that, you know, that we could be mainstream. Right. I mean, it was was just uh, insane, but we really believed it, I believe. Mm. Yeah. I think we did. Well, you know, that brings up an interesting question about the nature of mainstream success and what we consider significant. Um, that kind of success was something you were seeking at the time, but what you're doing was pretty off the wall and, frankly, probably pretty provocative for mass consumption. I mean, I, I think of a song like Get Your Biscuits in the Oven and Your Buns in the Bed from your first record, which was the kind of satire you just didn't hear on country radio and, and, and still don't, but it did get people talking. You uppity women, I don't understand Why you gotta go try to act like a man But before you make your weekly visit to the shrink You better occupy the kitchen I'll liberate the sink Get your biscuits in the oven and your buns in the bed. That's what I do, my baby said. All the liberation is going to your head. Get your biscuits in the oven and your buns in the bed. Well, that was a funny little uh, feminist ditty. Get your biscuits in the oven and your buns in the bed. And it was getting good airplay uh, on the underground FM stations and stuff at the time, 1973, and that's when we had that incident at, uh, it was only our second or third show, incident at uh, University of Buffalo, hmm. when uh, when we did that song, and there was a group of, uh, shall we say, cranked up lesbians who attacked the stage, hmm. and they began uh, wrecking the equipment and fighting with the Jew boys, and they were winning. <laughs> so the campus police were called, and they gave us a protective escort off of campus 
And that's when, a few months later, I received the Male Chauvinist Pig of the Year Award, 1973, <laughs> from the National Organization for Women. <laughs> that was my first uh, uh, award as a result of country music. <laughs> right. Um, well, there were a number of, of humorous songs on that first record, including uh, We Reserve the Right to Refuse Service to You, which is, you know, a little funny, but also includes some powerful social commentary. And one of the songs on that record that sounds like it's going to be satirical, but is actually a, a serious tribute to Holocaust survivors is called Ride em Jew Boy. How long will you? Nelson Mandela had a smuggled tape cassette. He had a number of them for his late-night radio show on Robben Island Right. for the other prisoners. And the song he always signed off with was Ride em, Jew Boy. Hmm. And we get this. Well, I first heard of it, and I guess it was already 96. I, I was in, um, in South Africa on a kind of a book tour. And uh, and I met this guy, Tokyo Seshwale, spelled sex whale. <laughs> and Tokyo was Mandela's right-hand man, it turned out. Right. And he's the one who, who told me, he said that Mandela was a very big fan of mine. And I naturally assumed it was the books, you know. And he said, no, it's not the books. He said, it's it's the music. And uh, the song Mandela, he, he was in the cell next to Mandela for three or four years on Robben Island. Those were the last four years Mandela was in prison. He was in prison for 30 years and all. Right. And he came right out and became president. You know, I mean, he won. Yeah. And even the Boer prison guards uh, were, you know, shouting, Viva Mandela. I mean, he he turned them. He did it like Jesus. Right. And um, Tokyo told me, don't get too swelled ahead about this because you are not Mandela's favorite singer. His favorite always was Dolly Parton. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. I, I don't think I would have assumed that. But I think, again, that points back to the question of what is meaningful as a songwriter in terms of making an artistic impact or an inspirational impact, you know, if, if not major commercial success. You never know who's going to be listening. You don't know who's going to hear it. Right. But I never thought that Mandela would be playing it as a sign-off song every night on his little pirate radio station. That's wild. You know, so that's kind of, that's, I would say, the kind of thing that you can only consign to your heart. That's an honor. You can't put that one on the mantelpiece. Yeah. That one is, uh, you know, it's not like being nominated for a Grammy or anything. This is it's more significant. Yeah, yeah. There is my definition of significant and important. Hmm. Justin Bieber is important, but he's not significant. Hmm. Being nominated for a Grammy is important, but it's not significant. Hmm. But something like this is significant. You know, I'm becoming the new David Hasselhoff in Germany. Oh, yeah. Uh, the last <laughs> tour I did there a year and a half ago, all the shows were sold out, all by young people. I'm very impressed with them. There's a kind of a bond that, as a Jew, playing in uh, Munich and uh, Nuremberg and all that was like performing on a Native American burial ground. Mm-hmm. 
at first. Yeah. And then I realized these kids weren't even around at the time. Sure. And uh, they, uh, if they went, they know what they would find if they went to Ancestry.com, and it would not be a pretty picture. Right. So uh, that may be part of the reason uh, that they like Kinky. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and these are young people who love America. And right. they know all of my songs and all the mystery novels they've read, translated into German. And uh, you look at the people that they love, well, they're, it, it's a kind of America that we don't get. Right. But the people that they love are uh, Warren Zevon, mm-hmm. uh, Graham Parsons, right. Shel Silverstein, um, Abby Hoffman, Hunter Thompson, Kinky Friedman, Tom Waits, Iggy Pop. You get the drift. What right. do all these people have in common? They, none of them are mainstreamers. Right. Hmm. All of them have a chance of being significant. Right. Uh, although we're not as important as Mariah Carey or somebody like that. Right. Selling right. millions. Or Beyonce. Hmm. You mentioned a moment ago that Mandela was like Jesus, which brings us to a song on your self-titled second album from 1974, They Ain't Making Jews Like Jesus Anymore. You know, and I think of that song or one of the the really clever songs on your follow-up album, Lasso from El Paso, is Men's Room L.A., about a guy who discovers a picture of Jesus on the floor of a public bathroom and then finds himself kind of in this spiritual dilemma as he realizes there's no toilet paper. Well, I said, Lord, what would you do? If you were me and I was you, take a chance, save your pants or your soul. And a voice said, Hey, Keith, it's Jesus here. You know, and I ain't no square. I mean, I've got these pictures of me and these statues. You know, they're everywhere. Well, I may seem I come from Liverpool. And then on the other hand, I may come from friends. But if you don't get off that toilet, well, I'm just gonna have to dance. And, and Ringo Starr actually appears on that song as the voice of Jesus, which is which is interesting. But, you know, whether it be that song or, or High on Jesus from Sold American or the Gospel According to John from Under the Double Ego, uh, there seems to be this thread in your songwriting that focuses on Jesus and Christianity in, in ways that range from admiring to iconoclastic to genuinely thought-provoking. Um, what draws you to Jesus as a, a, a Jewish guy in predominantly Christian Texas? Oh, I'm a Jew, all right. I still want to reduce the speed limits to fifty-four ninety-five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, but uh, it's uh, a Jew writing about another Jew, hmm. and um, it's. I mean, I'm. Uh, that's a, Jesus is an important guy to me. So is a Churchill. I mean, hmm. those kind of people. <clears throat> and uh, interesting to note. Along with John Lennon, they consider themselves failures. Huh. Jesus never thought he was going to be a superstar. Hmm. And, uh... And you identify with that? Yeah, yeah. And church, well, no, no, I don't know if I identify with it. I I think that the people that have have changed the world the most are, are the, uh, are, are not 
what Donald Trump would call a, you know, winners and losers. Right. I mean, no, the losers are the ones, the ones that are, the ones that the German kids like are the ones who, they like the troublemakers, they like the guys outside of the mainstream who stir the pot. Right. That's clear to me. And uh, they think that those are the people that made America great. Right. And I think they're right. Hmm. And I think that that's what I'd like to be, one of those people. I'd like to be a defender of strays. I mean, that's that's important. Yeah. And not just to be somebody who, you know, uh, a participant, a observer of life is fine, but if you're just an observer of life, that's hardly worth having gone through the process. Huh. That's well said. Uh, you know, there were plenty of eyebrow-raising songs from your 1970s era, like Homo Erectus or Asshole from El Paso, but there are also plenty of serious and reflective songs that maybe didn't get as much attention. It seems that your most recent material on your Circus of Life album has moved away from the funnier stuff that maybe once drew the most attention, but it's also kind of put a spotlight on your songwriting chops. Does it come more naturally to you these days to be introspective? Well, you know, I'm... The people that like the old stuff are usually insects trapped in amber, you know. <laughs> and we, I've moved past them, and I, I like them. I'm not touchy about it. If somebody really wants to hear uh, old Ben Lucas had a lot of mucus, first song I wrote when I was 11, <laughs> right. um, they're, they're welcome to, you know. I'm, I'll probably do it. Right. Or proud to be an asshole from El Paso or whatever. But... Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm not writing that anymore. I'm writing songs for the lonely beekeeper. Hmm. Um, songs for the guy who runs the lighthouse. Uh, and I don't give a good goddamn who hears it or if the radio plays it or, you know, or, or if the songs are all tragic or all whatever. Right, right. Uh, right. So that's good. I mean, uh, that's what resulted. And the fact that I was miserable when I wrote that record, and I still am. Hmm. But I've been miserable for about 73 years, and things are starting to look up. <laughs> I've, I've read a quote from you where you said you, you've got to be miserable to write great songs. you believe Absolutely. that? I'm so sure of that. Guys, I couldn't, you know, all you got to do is, uh, I can give you a million examples of people who's just their writing just went into the, the shitter the minute uh, they became happy or well-adjusted. <laughs> right. You know, we don't want to hear about, Jerry Jeff uh, jogging with his wife or uh, taking vitamins or feeding the baby or changing diapers. Or you know, nobody wants to hear that. Right. Uh, we want to hear drunken Jerry Jeff. Uh, brilliant Jerry Jeff. Yeah. And uh, so that's just the way it is. And, yeah, I think, uh, <coughs> I think I'm done writing comedy stuff. I mean, if... I will occasionally do a song or two like that, but the the vast portion of of my show now, uh, and it's really going down well. Look, I mean, I'm not playing stadiums, but I never wanted to, nor do I want to. Um, but for whatever it is, for who's there, we're drawing a lot of people, and they're and and they're not all just. Uh, I mean, they're a very interesting audience. Um, so. 
I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I'm conscious of being. I also, when I played Circus of Life back a number of times, I realized that there's almost every song is a little uh, silent letter to somebody I loved, hmm. or to a dead cat, or to a, a, a lost person. Yeah. No, no, I appreciate that, that that people do like the old songs, but I. I've just finished doing maybe a little more than 40 uh, cities on a on a tour that never stopped. It's just like a Bob Dylan's never-ending tour except these are these are new songs. Right. That I that are so new. It's like working without a net. And they go over so great uh outside the country. In Europe and in Australia, for instance. Yeah. They really get it and if I fuck something up or forget a lyric or something, which could happen because they're new songs. Right. And I haven't really played them much. And I just go, fuck. And I walk over and have a little shot of Mexican mouthwash. <laughs> tequila, which I call the Barry Manilow drink because it makes you feel good for a short period of time. <laughs> and uh, my friend in Denver uh, who has a, a three-year-old daughter who uh, goes around the house saying, fuck it. You know, if it does, things don't work out, she says, fuck it. Right. And uh, he, he did, she didn't get it from him, he said, or his wife. Right. But from somebody, she did. Just fuck it. Right. So I, I never used to say that. So now it's good enough for the three-year-old to do. Because <laughs> you know, I never like to say fuck in front of a C-H-I-L-D if I can avoid it. <laughs> um. Well, the the Circus of Life album is is really your first new studio record of original songs since Under the Double Ego from 1983. And, uh, of, of course, you turned your creative efforts to becoming a successful mystery novelist in the intervening years. But, you know, suddenly here you are returning with great songs like Back to Grace. Now I'm tumbling down the subway steps, mumbling to myself. If life's a 12-step program, I just bounced off number 12. I landed in the gutter, some kind people brought me here. They said, do you want salvation? I said, I'd rather have a beer. Walking down the drunken sidewalk, I can see her pretty face. I must get What brought you back to songwriting after almost four decades? Well, that was a mystical experience that occurred as recently as it was last year. And that's three o'clock in the morning. I'm watching Madlock on TV. <laughs> uh, me and my little dog, uh, Mr. P. So I get a phone call from my shrink, Willie Nelson. <laughs> who has, has been my shrink for a long time. Right. And he's given me such advice as... Uh, uh, if you're going to have sex with an animal, always make it a horse. Because that way, if things don't work out, at least you know you've got to ride home. It's <laughs> very good advice for politics <laughs> and for life. So, uh, uh, at any rate, so, Willie, as soon as I, I, he says, what are you doing, Kink? I said, I'm watching Matlock. And Willie says, um, that's a sure sign of depression. <laughs> said, turn him off, Kinky. Turn off Madlock. And start writing. 
All right, so this impressed me so much, mainly because somebody who was older than me, which is getting hard to find. <laughs> I mean, I'm 73, though I read at the 75-year-old level. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's hard to find people older than me. That, and if I was older, I wouldn't have much interest in people my age. <laughs> I mean, you have less interest. You know, you're, it's mortality. It's, I mean, you know, it's, it's easy for a young guy to give you a hand. Right. So for Willie to encourage somebody, at his age, I was very impressed with that. So maybe that's what did it. But I started writing. And the first song was Jesus in Pajamas, which happened to me in Dallas at a Denny's. Hmm. And, uh, and the others came in rapid order. So in the space of one month, I'd written 12 new songs. Wow. Now, I don't know how commercial these are or not, or even if there's a market anymore that means anything. But uh, I do know that these, uh, yeah, something like uh, Back to Grace would be a country hit 30 years ago, right. 40 years ago. And, uh, and they're coming. So, so, so I immediately called Willie and told him that I'd written these songs. You know, and Willie said, well, send them to me. Send them to me. I'll tell you, let you know what I think. And, uh, and then I said, how are you doing, Willie? I'm hearing all these rumors that you're not feeling well. How are you doing, man? And he says, uh, well, you know, a little up, a little down, the usual. And I said, by the way, Kinky, what channel is Matlock on? <laughs> um, <laughs> this is kind of a, a two-part question, but after such a long time away from songwriting, did you have to knock out the cobwebs by writing a bunch of bad songs before getting your chops back and, and kind of piggybacking off that. Now that you are writing again, what are your hopes in a, a commercial sense for the new stuff, you know, in a world that has changed a lot musically since you were last writing songs? If I could write a shitty song, it'd be like writing a romance novel. I would do it in a minute. I mean, anybody <laughs> would. Because you know, that's what's successful. Right. Um, <laughs> I no, I was mis I was here alone. I was very unhappy. But uh, no, the songs I'm writing now, yeah, I I fight happiness at every turn. Yeah, fellas, <laughs> I don't want to be a happy camper because that kind of person never creates anything great. Yeah, and uh, and we got to look at these guys. Look at Jesus. Look at the you know the crowd. The crowd uh, crowd all wanted uh, Barabbas. They all cheered. They said, free Barabbas killed Jesus. Right. That's what, that's what happened. That's what they did. Yeah. And they've been doing it ever since. Uh, so that's why they buried Mozart, or we did. We all buried Mozart in a, a pauper's grave, even though he'd been a star once. Hmm. Uh, he wasn't at that time. And, and Van Gogh, who desperately wanted one thing, to sell a fucking painting. That's the way, uh, you know, the majority always gets it wrong. The majority always always picks Barabbas. You know, speaking of Jesus again, let's let's talk about the song Jesus in Pajamas from the new record, which you referenced a moment ago. Where the only whole heart is a broken one And the only true love an unspoken one So help him if you can help him if you're able 
When Jesus in pajamas is standing at your table. Jesus in pajamas, uh, it's at another level. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the best songs I ever wrote. I'm sure of that. Uh, and I mean, you know, you should never judge your own stuff because nobody's a good judge of that. Right. But um, I don't think there's anybody my age writing as well new material. Hmm. I mean, it's it's arguable. You could say, well, Willie will come up with a great song. Now then, I mean, after you've written 2,000 songs like Willie has or Billy Joe or Bob Dylan, I mean, how do you expect Bob to write a whole record of great new songs? Right. <laughs> I mean, it would be a parody of himself. Right. So if I'd written several thousand songs, I couldn't do it. The fact that I'd laid out for about 40 years, masturbating like a monkey in a mental hospital. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> there's, a, there's a mental image that I will not <laughs> soon shake. <laughs> um, well, you, you mentioned Bob Dylan. Um there's this quote from Dylan that says, I don't understand music. I understand Lightning Hopkins. I understand Lead Belly, John Lee Hooker, Woody Guthrie, and Kinky Friedman. And you actually toured with Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review in 1976, and there seems to be so much mystery surrounding Bob. So he understands you, but do you feel like you understand Bob Dylan? I understand Bob Dylan in a really different way. Uh, I see him as a Tom Sawyer. Hmm. As a real mischievous guy and a funny guy. And I mean, I see another side. I mean, knew he was funny, but he's always been kind of a Howard Hughes. You don't, you know, you, he's been a mystery. And Dylan, of course, recorded several of his classic albums in Nashville. And it sounds like you have some really fond memories of your time in Nashville, though you're also a bit of an iconoclast when it comes to the industry. Um, your 1983 album, Under the Double Ego, featured songs such as Nashville Casualty and Life, which tells the tale of a forgotten old banjo player in Nashville and people who read People magazine, which includes commentary about the you know, opportunistic pursuit of country music success. And to tell you the truth, this telephone booth gets lonesome in the rain. But son, I'm 21 in Nashville and I'm 43. And when your mama gets home, would you tell her I phone? Take a lifetime to explain that I'm a country picker with a bumper sticker that says, God bless John Wayne. And bless the people who read People magazine. Bless the soap opera lovers. Bless the hometown. I hear themes on that record that grapple with both the nature of Nashville and the nature of fame. What are your thoughts on Nashville these days? But just uh, they almost never get it right. <laughs> That's the important thing. Just remember that uh, <laughs> uh, record that uh, there was a Hank Williams uh, compilation record put together after Hank's death, one of many, by the record label. Right. And uh, this one was uh, called uh, Kalijah and Other Humorous Songs Right. by Hank Williams. Now, Kalija, I think, is probably the most tragic song Hank ever wrote. Yeah, it's not really a funny song. No, it's not. And, it's, uh, of course, it's pretty politically incorrect these days. But so is everything else, you know. <laughs> we are like uh, Don Quixote, you know. It's, it's very quixotic what anybody attempting to, uh, to just write a song. 
because the others, the songs are always now written with uh, with another motivation. For instance, I come up to you guys and say, "Hey, there's this new TV series, or Netflix is picking this up, and we need one song about your new car." And the three or four or five of us are going to write it, you know? Right. And uh, then we'll have it. Hmm. And that's kind of how I think most of the songs that are written. Right, right. Because you can't tell them, make it sound like a Roger Miller or Shel Silverstein, because right. they probably wouldn't know what we were talking about. <laughs> More kind of writing by assignment rather than inspiration, yeah. I guess. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, you know, writing should be done uh, for the purest of reasons. And uh, they've... Every uh, publishing house, what used to be a quaint publishing house, is now a brothel, you know, a corporate brothel. It's a corporate whorehouse, and they have their their songwriter meetings or whatever they do. Uh, you're right, like like taking orders from uh, at a delicatessen or something. Hmm, yeah. Well, you know, I saw you perform with Buddy Miller in Nashville recently at Americana Fest. And, you know, while commercial country radio definitely leaves a lot to be desired, um, I do think there are some amazing people like Buddy in Nashville today who have the, you know, the highest standards of of craftsmanship and and artistic integrity. There's very few guys like, like Buddy that can navigate that and still remain soulful and be connected to really good musicians and stuff and not be... Be corporate, you know? Yeah. There's a great, there's no doubt about it that that the uh, cranes have blotted out the skies in Nashville. So I have written a song about that already called Me and Billy Swan. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of an inside Nashville song, but it's one of my better efforts. It's So what, what I've been doing is writing a, uh, an EP, I guess, because everybody's doing an EP. Right. Anyway, so I, I was telling Willie when we went to Nashville last, which was hmm, some years, a couple years ago. It was for some marijuana deal and uh, promotion thing, something. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, I was telling him it's nostalgic, but it's sad. It's very corporate. I don't think anything's really happening here until right. the pendulum swings back. Right. Willie says, no, it's still, it's still the dream. He says, still the kid with a pickup truck, you know, full of guitars and, uh, and suitcases of song lyrics and stuff. That kid is coming here, you know, is coming to Nashville. Right, right. And, uh, and I say yes, and he'll run into a brick fucking wall, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, because... The songs coming out of there are, are pathetic. I mean, the whole idea of, of a song has been diminished. Hmm. Uh, but it's no different than a Hollywood movie, which we all know. We know about that. They get an actor you never heard of, give him $72 million. He does the movie. You never hear from him again. Right. And uh, Or hear his name again. And, uh, so it's cultural ADD. Hmm. It's political correctness, the correctness that Barbara Jordan, Texas's modern-day statesman, warned us about. Anyway, not to get politics into things. You know my <laughs> definition of politics. Poly means more than one, and ticks are blood-sucking parasites. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, what's happened with the cultural ADD 
is that guys like Tom T. Hall are out of business. Right. Because nobody's going to listen to any more than the first 15 seconds of a song. Yeah. Hmm. Or maybe they'll hear half of it. Yeah. But they won't stick around. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I love Tom T. Hall. I love all of his songs and both of his melodies. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, we have a very different take on it because... When Willie left in 71, I think when he went, followed that David Crockett route back to Texas, Right. I don't think there was a soul on Music Row that ever thought they would hear or see from him again. Hmm, sure. You know, I think they all, well, we'll never see that guy again. Yeah. And I think that's what the Music Row execs and people all felt. Right. Uh, but he fooled them. And it took his whole life to do it. I mean, the first half of his life was pretty much failure and uh hustling yeah and not quite making it Mm -hmm. and the second half was vast unlimited success right and uh and it's harder to deal with the latter than the former Hmm. falling on your face is still moving forward (laughs) good advice Well, Kinky, uh, thank you very much. The uh, The new album is, is great, and uh, we appreciate you taking some time with us today. Gentlemen, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you down the highway. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters.